Hello movie truthers, welcome to this week's episode of Truth and Movies. I'm Leila Latif. I'm Hafa Sellers-Ross. And I'm Zara Al-Hadet. On the show this week, Oliver Hermanus remakes a classic Kurosawa in Living, Jennifer Lawrence returns from war in Causeway, and on Film Club, death has rarely been as fun as it is in Harold and Ward. All coming up on Truth and Movies, a Little White Lies podcast. So, Hafa, you are someone who's recently been on the program, so I'm sure most people can remember who you are. But Zara, you're new to us. Yes, I am. <laughs> yeah, and you've come to us through Hannah Strong, digital editor at Little White Lies, and uh, she was your mentor during LFF, is that right? Yes, uh, so I was part of the BFI's LFF Film Critics Mentorship. So Hannah was my mentor, so she helped like basically helped me understand the program and like walked me through what I should expect and also uh, helped me get my first article published for Little White Lies which is very cool. That's amazing what was the article on? It was on uh, the festival itself so basically Mm -hmm. I focused on three specific films that was on struggling fathers but the overall theme of the article was how these a lot of the films on the festival were about how parenthood doesn't equal personhood. Oh, wow. That actually sounds like something that you could also write, Hafa. You're, you're very into kind of complicated parental relationships on screen. I know. This is my niche. We're going to talk about a couple of my dark niches this time around. But parenthood is definitely one of them. But yeah, did you guys, what were your highlights of LFF? I know both of you being there. I saw very little, unfortunately. So I'm kind of having to hear it all, all about it secondhand. A lot of the films that I didn't see as much at LFF either because I watched the vast majority of the core program in other festivals. But from what I watched on the ground, my favorite has been Pinocchio. I love Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio. I watched it twice in one day. Um, I think it's gorgeous. It is the best he's been in a decade, maybe more than that. He truly, as we're going to talk about in the podcast taking a story that has been told brilliantly before and managing to find something new within. So it's just gorgeous. I was there for the mentorship, so I was there for like almost that whole two week stretch. But I don't know, I watched about just under twenty, I think, which is quite a lot, uh, for me at least. But in terms of favorites, I'd say oh my number one favorite has to be uh Nikyatu Jusu's nanny which will be out soon. That one really blew me away, especially after when I when I thought about it because I just couldn't stop thinking about it. Um, Medusa Deluxe, I really enjoyed. I watched that at 8am, but it really woke me up because it was so fun. And like, in terms of more of a fun thing, I really enjoyed Bros, which is out now, I think. Bros is really fun, <laughs> yeah. There is so much of these festivals that, you know, as much as it's about the film, but it's about kind of making the connections, navigating this industry, figuring out how any of it works, because it's all so uh, mysterious. Like, did you find any surprises about how this kind of film criticism world operates? Mostly that press screenings are like at 8am. Like, how are you <laughs> supposed to think at 8am? How are you supposed to like make notes and stuff? When you're supposed to enjoy the film experience when you've just woken up and nobody else is awake. Yeah. And and as uh, Haffer and I did normally on two hours sleep, <laughs> like the last film ends at like 10pm. Oh, yep. 
getting on boats and transport and turning around reviews the night before, filing by 2 a.m., sleeping an hour and a half, a mixture of coffee and tears. But it keeps you go. It keeps you going. I quite like the morning screenings. I love an eight a.m. screening because it sets my day in a good way. It makes me wake up early because if I don't have a reason to wake up early, I will waste my morning. <laughs> I'll just sleep away. Yeah, I mean it was good experience, and I I agree. Like with Hafa, it's nice to have your day set. It's just that waking up and deciding it's like why am I doing this <laughs> it's too early for a movie but the discussions after really energizes me so it was very fun oh, well, great to hear it and I'm excited to see what you do in the future I mean Hannah's an amazing mentor and I'm sure she will steer you into uh, some really exciting writing ahead of you thank you <laughs> we should get started with the films that we're discussing this week first up living A remake of Kurosawa's Ikiru, Living is the story of an ordinary man reduced by years of oppressive office routine to a shadow existence, who at the 11th hour makes a supreme effort to turn his dull life into something wonderful, into one he can say has been lived to the full. So, Hafa, it's been a while since you saw this originally at Sundance, is this right? Yeah, so we were just talking about watching films at weird hours. And I remember, Leila, you and I were chatting all throughout Sundance, which we've done online this year. And because it's a US festival, Zara, we were watching films at like 2 a.m. Like, honest to God, because the premieres were these weird times in the UK. So I remember watching Living quite late at night. And this might be... Slightly controversial, but I cannot stand Bill Nye. I have a serious problem with Nye. I I cannot enjoy the vast majority of his performances. I struggle with him. So I went into it thinking, well, let's give this a shot. Ikiru is terrific. I am a big fan of Kazuo Shiguru. I love Never Let Me Go. There were a lot of elements in this that I was drawn to and I have never been so ecstatic in being wrong. This is the best I have seen Bill Nye by far. It was a film that from the very first 10 minutes, I was so down. It is beautifully color graded. Cinematography is just so suiting and the set designs, the costume designs is one of those films that even on a small screen, you are instantly drawn to what it does. And then there's the casting. I love Amy Lou Wood. This has been a fantastic year for the kids of sex education. You had Asa Butterfield and Flux Gourmet, Emma Mackie and Emily, Shutigawa is the new Doctor Who, and now Amy Lou Wood here. So it's been quite a year for the peeps of sex education, and she is terrific opposite Bill Nye. And then Tom Burke is the cherry on top. Uh, yeah, well, Tom Burke is uh, one of those people where, you know, they say it's um, when you list a cast, whether you kind of do an and or an oh. And <laughs> so, and he's very much an and Tom Burke. Like when you just see that note on the IMDb, it's like, oh, hooray, this guy's here. <laughs> he's just so good. And he's, this is one of those things, he's only in it for five, ten minutes in this film. 
And he so brilliantly casted at this sort of bohemian outcast, this guy who's going to take you by the hand and say, look, life can be more than work. Let's go to this pub. And it's a little bit of the devil on the shoulder. And I cannot think of someone in new British cinema that can do devil on the shoulder quite like Tom Burke. Zaraf, this film, I mean, obviously it's about a man with a terminal diagnosis, but it is supposed to be overall very uplifting and inspiring was that your experience with it well I cried quite a few times so I don't know if it's I mean it is uplifting but also devastating especially his monologue with when they were at the pub that got me sobbing at the end got me sobbing when he got his diagnosis and he was waiting for his son and daughter-in-law in the dark that was a heartbreaking yeah, it was less uplifting and more yeah, heart-wrenching, but in a good way, if that makes sense. They handled the themes of death very well, and it really made me made me think about my own life, even though I'm very young. But I guess that's the point of it. Yeah, it's, it's one of the major differences from Ikuru is that, you know, uh, in that the bureaucrat was, you know, played by an actor I think was in his like mid 40s maybe. And now it's kind of come to Bill Nye, who's in his 70s. So I suppose that kind of changes the tone of it a little bit because it is, you know, he's sort of confronting death. And I and you're like, well, this is probably not too far away, <laughs> like <laughs> a best case scenario, but it's never too late to have an epiphany about the meaning of life, I suppose. Especially at the time. I've never seen Ikuro, actually. Oh my God. Sorry. <laughs> no, you should definitely okay. go watch it. It is, so I watched yeah. it right after it. Um, so I watched Living and then I revisited Ikuro and I was so devastated. I think... Leila can talk more about it because I know it's one of her favorites. It is, yeah. No, it's. Um, I absolutely love Ikuru. This is a slightly more optimistic film, I would say, than Ikuru. And I, I interviewed the team behind this, and they were saying that you know, basically, when Kurosawa was working, he didn't know that things were about to get a lot better for Japan. But like in this, you can do a portrait of England being just like, oh, you know, it's all good because they're about to start the welfare state and the NHS is about to emerge and they're going to rebuild Britain. So that kind of, I think, made the whole thing feel a little bit more optimistic. But yes, revisit Ikuru. It's an absolute masterpiece, Sarah. You're going to love it. Uh, it made me want to watch it. So I should. <laughs> I'm, I feel like I'm still like a baby cinephile. So I have to like catch up in terms of films I need to watch. Well, this is what you'll discover with now that you're kind of getting into this, that people feel that film critics need to have seen every film ever made and nobody has. The time that we've been talking here, another six films have been made. <laughs> like, it, it keeps on going. You can never be fully caught up. So don't don't weigh that on your shoulders. But do watch Akito. It's great. I will. <laughs> uh, Happy, are you generally a Kurosawa fan? So was this like a little bit, you know, were you worried coming into something that was going to be possibly sacrilegious taking on the master yeah I think I'm not a super fan in the sense that I would know every single little thing about his entire filmography but I've seen the vast majority of his films I'm with the vast majority of people in agreeing that he's one of the masters and it's very hard to take on something that has been done 
terrifically well the first time around. And I am also, I have a view generally on remakes that you need to have a very strong motivation and a very strong sense of your own voice as a filmmaker and as a creative team to take on something that has been done before, especially something that has been done before well. I think there are only a handful of remakes that I would sit and think, well, I am glad that this got made and Living is one of them. I wouldn't say, I think qualifiers are dangerous. It's not better or worse. It is a different treatment on it. And it didn't feel like an exercise in self-indulgence from a director who said, look, I'm at a point in my career where I can take one of the masters and play tat-a-tat. It feels like an homage. It feels like someone who was inspired by it and found motivation to tackle it from a slightly different point of view, but without losing the essence of the film, which is reflected in the way that he kept that final scene. And even though we knew what was coming, it is still a gut punch. And if there's anything in that film that proves that this is a a well-crafted remake I think is how emotional we'll still get even though we know what's coming um yeah I mean I actually came even to Akira in the first place I watched a program that was about some of the most moving scenes in cinema and they just showed that scene on the swing in the original film and I was just like okay no I need to go and watch this immediately (laughs) and it's funny because it's like even though you know it's coming and even like I've now watched this film three times I think like it just gets you and I think it's because it's so joyous in a very unexpected way and yeah I do think that Oliver Hermanus even for somebody who's watched Akira as many times did create something that had a, a reason to exist yeah and as someone who calls the council quite often the small victories <laughs> are everything like it's like beautiful you know when you get something from the council it does feel like your life's worth living so there's that as well Uh, Zara, any last thoughts on living before we move on? Oh, I just want to say I really enjoyed, I don't know if they did this in Ikiru, but using Mr. Wakeling as a conduit as a beginning, I really enjoyed that. When I was watching, I was like, why would you want to introduce him through another person? But as it went on, I really appreciated that beginning because you only started following Mr. Williams when he was at his doctor's appointment. So it felt like his life began where it ended. And I had a moment, I was like, oh my God. This is art. (laughs) (laughs) This is art. This is life. This is my battle with the council. Finally, (laughs) victoriously on screen. We should get some scores on this. Hafa, do you want to start? Um, In anticipation, enjoyment, and in retrospect. Anticipation, I would say a three, probably because of Kurosawa and Shigeru's names attached to it. Enjoyment, that's a good four for me. I think it's a beautiful film. And in retrospect, another solid four. Four big stars for this one. Zara, what about you? Anticipation, I say two, because I only know Ikiru by name. And I knew the actors, so I was just anticipating to see them in it. Enjoyment, I'd give it a four. As I said, I was crying. I enjoyed it. I had a lot of nice epiphanies during. And I had epiphanies after, so... In retrospect, it's also a four, almost a five, but I'll stick to a four because uh, on Letterboxd, I put it as a four. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I just had a lot of moments where I kept thinking about it and I was just, I just had to pause in my everyday life. I'm like, no, no. 
No, it's all going to end one day. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, it is. So we might as well make art that kind of helps us confront that and decide how we're going to live our best lives. Yeah, so for me, four was across the board. Yeah, Ishiguro is a pretty solid indicator of quality, even if I was slightly nervous to see that, like, why would you remake something perfect? But yeah. Great film, lovely performances, and definitely a good remake. Not not a Gus Van Zandt doing Psycho or, or something dreadful like that. Why would you say that? I think it's important to just say how wrong it could have gone, though. I mean, that is that we're giving Hermanus credit because, <laughs> because, you know, lesser efforts exist. Next up, Causeway. Lindsay, a US soldier, experiences a traumatic brain injury during her tour in Afghanistan, which forces her to return home. She struggles to return to daily life with her mother as she waits for her eventual redeployment. Zara, you coming into this, are you a big fan of Jennifer Lawrence? She's kind of went away for a little bit, and now she seems to be back with quite a few different projects. Uh, not particularly, but I knew about it. And obviously I know Jennifer Lawrence, she was part of my childhood, she did Hunger Games and all that. So it was interesting to see her in a role where she was playing a real person, because I feel like all her roles before this, well at least recently, it felt very a lot more theatrical in a way. So it was nice to see her be brought, not be brought down, but she was playing someone where she had to be more subtle and it was a lot more quiet which I appreciated in terms of the film like I quite enjoyed it obviously that is not like it doesn't have a huge plot doesn't have huge set pieces or whatever but I did enjoy how it explored trauma and I enjoyed Brian Tyree Henry was a highlight for me he was great (laughs) I'd say I'd almost say he did a bit better than Jennifer in this because every time he was on screen I was immediately like enraptured I was like yes keep talking (laughs) I just want to keep seeing you (laughs) but yeah overall it was it was a nice slow film I feel like Brian Tyree Henry is to America what Tom Burke is to England. <laughs> the just, nice version. Every time, yeah. Yeah, he's just always so pleased to see him. Half did this work for you? I mean, it's a very small, quiet character study and she hasn't done that sort of thing for a while. Yeah, I am a sucker for understated two-hander character studies this is something that if done well usually works with me when I have the time to be introduced to characters and their predicaments without a specific need for a potpourri of tangential narrative devices you know like different plots and different people and I just enjoy seeing people figured out and sit and look at things and people and their lives I had only seen or heard of Causeway by seeing that one still of Jennifer Lawrence looking out of a bus window and I'm like oh no what is this going to be about and this is bad I should have been judging this film by one still I was one of those people who I'm a bit older than you, Zara. Um, <laughs> I don't know if you can notice, but I was introduced to Jennifer Lawrence with Winter's Bone and this Indie Darling and that fantastic performance that made her career. And we all, I think, believed that she would pull a Paul Mescal and work with some 
indie directors for a few more years and she made some career decisions that who am I to judge but I was not particularly fond of I think she was often wasted in big extravaganzas that did nothing for her particular acting traits really so it's good once as Zara was saying it's good to see her as a real person again this is her overdue return to indie filmmaking and she is fantastic clear face walking around in great t-shirts and when the camera lingers on her face it is truly a revelation I don't think that Brian Tyree Henry could have been any better cast he feels like the perfect counterpart to her here when I think of him I think of if Beale Street could talk and how flabbergasted I was every time he was on screen. I was terrified for a second when he took that role in Eternals. I'm like, no, don't drift away from us. Yeah, but, yeah. where he's he's the Eternal that invents the atomic bomb. <laughs> oh my god, I was like, no, what was that? It was it was both Brian Terry Henry and Betty Keoghan, and I'm like, please, Chloe Zhao, don't take them to to franchise filmmaking but I really loved it I was affected by it I saw a lot of two and three stars for the film all across the board so expectations were low and I was really surprised at how affected and how moved I was by it I think a lot of the criticism around the dynamics in their friendship and the platonic relationship between a man and a woman they can be valid but I also think that it's messy a relationship between a man and a woman, a platonic friendship is always messy. You cannot expect them to to dance within the lines of what you would hope is a faithful representation of what it should and could be. The only criticism I would have of it is that sometimes it feels a little bit like a play. And I think it might be because Lila Nogebauer has a the director, it's her first feature film. Her background is in theater. And I think sometimes the heavy dialogue without a full understanding of the surroundings can become a little too static. But it's solved very quickly. I love the scenes by the pool. I love her doctor's appointments. It's just so good. It really worked for me. What can I say? Yeah. Um, yeah, I think Jennifer Lawrence and Lila Neckenbauer bring just enough when it comes to sort of that depiction of trauma. Like there is kind of... Yeah, there's a physical side to it. There's also kind of a nervous energy that she then has and the sort of melancholy that she travels with. But it's sort of always present. But I don't think they ever overdo it. Zara, for you, were you kind of left with... It kind of feels that like maybe a big twist is coming, but then it's, you know, it's not that kind of movie, it turns out. Did it kind of all build to enough for you? I felt though the beginning was very indicative of what kind of film it was going to be. So I didn't have that many expectations on what would happen. I was very nervous on where the relationship between the two characters were going, between Lindsay and James, because they had a really weird dynamic, I feel, where it was it was platonic, but at the same time you could tell he was into her, but it was established she was gay. And I was very afraid when they started hugging. I was like, no, don't, don't do it. And when they did it, I was like, no, no, why would you do that? It's supposed to be platonic. So that was just mostly what the drama was for me. Other than that, I did enjoy how, like you said, like how the trauma was depicted. And it was subtle enough and not too over the top that 
it would be off-putting. So yeah, I enjoyed it. I didn't have that many expectations about it. Just mostly terrified about the platonic slash not so platonic relationship. <laughs> I love this. You're you're like me watching a horror film. Like don't go into the basement. But when it comes to platonic boundaries. <laughs> <laughs> I think, you know, it's something that I quite like about it with James. Sometimes in life, it is enough to just be able to offer love without expecting anything in return, especially when you've been living with so many people who shun away from accepting it. I think this idea that a relationship is only successful if is a two-way relationship based on romantic standards it's a failure of us as human beings i think sometimes we just want to care for someone without needing to express something back which i quite like oh what a lovely note to end on well at least (laughs) end this film on uh zara do you want to go first when it comes to scores though in anticipation enjoyment and in retrospect in anticipation probably a three most because of my housemate jasmine (laughs) who just is a jennifer lawrence super fan so i was uh hyped up about it mostly just because of her in enjoyment a four like living i well, I didn't cry as much, but I did cry once. There was, there was a little cry in there. So I enjoyed the slowness for what it was. In retrospect, maybe a three. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it's like a three and a half more like. But, you know, I'll just stick with the three. It wasn't like something that blew me away, but I enjoyed it overall. Hafa, what about you? I think my anticipation was very low. As I said, I only saw J-Lo on the bus and I'm like... Okay, so that was a two, and then I bit my tongue, happily so. I really love this. I think my enjoyment is a solid four. And in retrospect, I also wish we could give a half a star, but if I cannot give 3.5, I'm leaning more towards four than I am towards three, surprisingly enough. But yeah, I quite like it. You know, in, in this audio medium, we have more flexibility <laughs> than we than, than we. That little white lies does in print. You give three point seven five. Go for it. I don't mind. Three point eighty seven. If I think about it, <laughs> yeah, I quite enjoyed it. Although I did once have an editor who allowed for half stars in their magazine to say that three point five is a coward's score. <laughs> <laughs> Because I was giving everything 3.5. For me, probably, again, fours across the board because the press tour between Brian and uh, Jennifer Lawrence, I saw a little bit of that online and it was so delightful and they clearly had such a great chemistry, the two of them, that I was quite excited to see this. And, you know, I had fond memories of Winter's Bone and I thought that might be kind of the territory that we were entering there enjoyed them both very much and Jennifer Lawrence had a really bad run for me I hated Passengers I hated those X-Men films Mother was awful so I'm happy she has taken pause and is coming back with this sort of hopefully much better direction next up Film Club You're listening to Truth and Movies. This episode is brought to you by Mubi, a curated streaming service showing exceptional films from around the globe. From iconic directors to emerging auteurs, there's always something new to discover on the platform. Recently, I've been dipping into the Cut to Black collection, a specially curated season celebrating black artistry on screen. Med Hondo's acerbic 1967 debut, Oh Sun, is an absolute must-see. 
As with Rangano Noyoni's spellbinding first feature, I Am Not a Witch, from 2017. And I'm counting down to Lars von Trier's new show, The Kingdom Exodus. Movie going into miniseries is huge, and I hear from my colleagues who are at the Venice Film Festival that The Kingdom is really something special. I'm pleased to see that Movie is streaming newly restored versions of both original seasons from November 13th, with the new season beginning on November 27th. And I wouldn't want to binge watch it all, so it's great that episodes are premiering weekly. With Movie, each and every film is hand-selected by their dedicated team of curators. You can choose from an eclectic mix of timeless classics, award-winning masterpieces and festival fresh gems. It's like having your own personal film festival, streaming anytime, anywhere. Try Movie free for 30 days at movie.com slash lwlies. That's mubi.com slash lwlies for a whole month of great cinema for free. Harold and Maud follows the exploits of Harold, a young man who is intrigued with death and who rejects the life with his detached mother prescribes for him. Harold develops a relationship with 79-year-old Maud who teaches Harold about the importance of living life to its fullest. So Haffer, once again, we are learning about living life to its fullest. And is that what you get from Harold and Maud? You know what? This is a really pressure-heavy moment for me because Harold and Maud is my favorite film of all time. I have a Harold and Maud tattoo. Harold and Maud is the film that got me into cinema. Harold and Maud is a film that I watched 256 times. <laughs> if this podcast was two and a half hours long, I would start from the beginning and read line by line. So I do feel, <laughs> I do feel slightly pressure talking about it because the first time I watched this film... My dad, who is the love of my life, watched this with me, um, showed me this film when I was just eight years old. I watched it dubbed. The title in Portuguese is Teach Me How to Live, which I think is just this beautiful encompassing of what this film is. I was blown away by this strange little dude who was into suicides and this woman who loved him for who he was and this balance between understanding that you can honor life by finding the point in which to abdicate from it. It is the starting point of a very long research in my career. I researched the portrait of suicide on film for over 10 years because I just love this film. And I think that when film treats end of life well, it provides us with some of the most beautiful reflections that cinema can truly kickstart. I just, I just love it. I think it's a film that boasts your endings with the same graces. It welcomes beginnings. It is fun. It is so beautifully written. Cat Stevens is the greatest. Uh, Hal Ashby is most likely, well, most probably my favorite director of, if not all time, at least from the 70s. He had a run that was like no one else. In the 70s, he done The Last Detail, Coming Home, The Landlord, Being There, Shampoo, Bound of Glory. The guy was on a roll. And of all of those classics, I think Hatter Than Maud is the epitome of what he could achieve in his representation of that very pivotal moment in American history where the liberal values of the 60s were being shunned by a new wave of conservatism from the late 70s. So I think, yeah, I could talk about this film forever. I think it's perfect. 
I could listen to you talk about this film forever, but yeah, it is it is rare that it's, that you kind of come across something that is so profound. It's such high art. It's so beautifully done, technically gorgeous, and it's so funny as well. <laughs> like Harold and Maud has jokes. People don't talk about how absolutely hilarious Harold and Maud is on top of everything else. Zara, was it the first time that you came to Harold and Maud watching it for the podcast? Yes, it was. I don't really know how. You're welcome. Yeah, I'm glad I did it. <laughs> it was so fun. I really want to watch it, actually. But yeah, I don't know how to follow up after Rafa made like a beautiful monologue about this film. <laughs> but yeah, it just, it was so, how to explain, so lovely. Harold and Maud like showed like, like a subtle yin and yang of life and death that yeah, at first you don't really get. But once you do it, like, kind of punches you in the face. And so the ending really hit me. Because I really thought he was dead. <laughs> but, then he, but then, like, any of his theatrics, he wasn't. I was like, yes, live. Live, my dude. Um, yeah, I just... Ruth Gordon, too, was such a highlight for me. She, she like, she was dazzling on screen. She, she was so charismatic and charming and every time she appeared I was like yes Maud hi <laughs> hi queen <laughs> yeah and correct me if I'm you can you can argue with me with this but Maud is like the framework for many manic pixie dream girl it's like kind of, like I kind of the whole time I was like yes but in a good way like it, it didn't feel superficial like how it was in the 2000s when it when the term was first coined like, obviously, because she has her age, so she has kind of a reasoning behind this kind of whimsical way of life. And like living, I feel like they use death as a mean of coming of age for uh, for the main characters, even though it ended up in different ways. But it was, like I say, like a beautiful yin and yang of life and death and how, how both affect each other in very serious but beautiful ways yeah i do believe technically the first manic pixie dream girl is kathleen turner in um bringing up baby we're gonna but i mean the guy who even came up with the term has has since disavowed it as sexist so it's kind of you know it, it, it is it is one that comes with some baggage i think what i love about maud though is as much as she is there to kind of like bring out the meaning of life to Harold and teach him and guide him and show him the way that it is to kind of really experience the beauty that is all around you. She so fundamentally does go out on her own terms. She has a whole set of motivations and lives and goals that she does not compromise on simply because this man has come into her life, which is a little bit different from, I suppose, Elizabeth Town and Kirsten Dunst, where, you know, that was, that was where the term, I believe, first came from. But yeah, I mean, what do you consider the legacy of this film to be, though, Hafa? Beyond kind of like having eccentric female characters bringing out Gerard de Vivre in, in, in Quirky Men. On Maud, I think it's an interesting comparison that you were making. But she's such a beautifully layered character. There's a lot of her femininity, her sexuality, her legacy, the way that Ashby just doesn't overexpose and 
you know that she's a World War II survivor. And at the same time, there's trinkets that she puts in her house. But you know that at the end of the day, if everything blown up, she wouldn't care. She wouldn't bat an eye. I have watched this film, as I said, many times. And I think my favorite scene time and time again is when they're both by the lake and Harold is giving her a gift and he's so excited and she just tosses it into the water and she looks at him and she says so I always know where it is and I think that is so so beautiful I think more than the suicides and more than the back and forth this is really at the heart of Harold and Maud that if you cultivate something if you dedicate love to something you can always return to it and yeah I'm just in love with it legacy first of all he gave us the many emo boys who are into dark stuff but just need their mama's love. Let's talk about Rushmore. Let's talk about Submarine. Even newer things on Netflix like Is the End of the Fucking World. Is a Butterfield that we spoke about earlier. Is the Hero Chasing of the 21st Century. We see this, this blueprint time and time again. I think more than modern itself, is an inspiration for many directors, Wes Anderson being probably the most vocal about it all. There's an interview that Schwartzman gave a few years after Rushmore when he said that Harold and Maud was the first time that a movie made him feel like a record did. It's truly that affecting just butterflies in your stomach excitement of seeing something that feels so fresh and only becomes fresher. It was 50 last year and I would recommend it to anyone of any age. And yeah, I think satire, a dark humor, the Hero Chase and Blueprint, the Manic Pixar Girl is a funny one, but I think Maud is much more in the older woman who is wittily self-aware and sexual and self-possessed. I think that's a bit more of a legacy. And yeah, I just love Colin Higgins' script. He's another tragic story here. He was one that left us a bit too soon, but he gave us both Head on the Mod and 9 to 5. So bless his soul to perfect scripts. Yeah, I will shut up because I will keep talking about Head on the Mod. But yeah. But yeah I'm just wondering, Zarev, like in terms of generational things, do you think something like this could be? come out today so I think people seem to view kind of big age gap romances very differently mm, yeah um I mean I feel like art is always controversial yeah like my film student answer is like art is always controversial it should come out <laughs> it should question things and make you make you think about it. but my grounded answer would be it would be tricky it would definitely be tricky it would be it would definitely get a lot of backlash especially on twitter <laughs> about about age gaps about romanticizing suicide stuff like that but i still feel like it something like this is very good good is like an understatement but i can't find the word right now it's very advantageous i don't know <laughs> it's very this is very good to like make people question make people think and still enjoy themselves as they watch the film which i feel like film at its core should do yeah i guess it's one of those things we often kind of lament the end of uh, media literacy when it comes to stuff like this but yeah no but it's just interesting because half earlier you said 
that there was something about a sort of moral conservatism of the 70s that this was kind of versus the 60s that is present in this film and I'm wondering whether we're sort of re-entering that in many ways like think things are getting a little bit more puritanical yeah and I think this was one of the big challenges they had at the time when marketing the film and Paramount finding a way of saying look this relationship between a 19 year old and a 79 year old is not an allegory for the political stance that how Ashby takes as a filmmaker when very much is. And once again, we find ourselves at a time when studios are having to go around political stances taken by filmmakers and creatives to market a film as not an allegory, but just something that is chewed up and ready to be digested in 90 swift minutes and three days after release will be on Netflix. But this will be a this will be a much bigger conversation. But it is a very similar point here. Yeah. Uh, well, please somebody program a Harold and Maud season so I can get the full two and a half hour version of Happer uh, on this film. Oh, I will call you after this, and I will talk for another another four hours. I just love this film, so thanks for having me to talk about this one. If people could see me right now, they would see that my face is all red in excitement. <laughs> So if you've got thoughts on these films, you can, well, tweet Haffa. <laughs> well, you should definitely tweet Haffa because uh, she's got more to say. Well, you can email truthandmovies at tcolondon.com or tweet us at LWLies. Next week, Chadwick Boseman will be sadly missed in Wakanda Forever. Jafar Panahi endures with no bears. And in Film Club, we're looking at the Iranian auteur's earlier entry, Offside. Thanks very much for tuning in. And if you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Truth and Movies is hosted by me, Leila Latif, and my guests this week were Hafa Salas Ross and Zara El Haddad. The podcast is produced by TCO London and edited by Bob Stankus. Mm-hmm.